Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. As we enter into this Advent season this year, I want for us to, once again, like we do every year, to turn our attention to the coming of Jesus into the world. And there are two gospel writers who really help us to do that. One of those is Matthew, the first gospel, and the other one is Luke. Both of them present to us this this kind of expanded account, a collection of various records of the events that are leading up to and surrounding the birth of Jesus. God directed these men to write this. And the Holy Spirit inspired them, directed them as they wrote this to put it down in writing so that people for years to come could have these accounts and read them and hear them read and rehearse these events over and over again. You know how it is with stories, right? With good stories. You want to hear them again and again. I don't know if you, if you do this. Um, once in a while, I try to recollect my earliest memory. Anybody else do this? You try to remember. What's the very first memory that I can bring back to my recollection. I've got this little collection in my mind of my earliest memories, and one of them is of something I would regularly hear on the radio in our home when I was a little guy. I think it was on Saturday mornings. My mom would dial the radio into WMBI, and I would hear this child's voice say, Aunt Teresa, tell us a story. And then you'd hear this woman's voice, what kind of a story? And you'd hear several children's voices ring out, any kind. And then the narrator's voice would come in and he would say, boys and girls are hungry for stories. And in my, <laughs> in my overly literal little brain, I found that funny, that they were hungry for stories, but it's true, right? We're hungry for stories. We like stories, and some stories we want to hear over and over, and for some stories it's important that we hear them over and over, and this is one of them. This isn't just a good story. It's an important story, crucially important. It's part of the ultimate story that something deep within every one of us needs to hear, and it speaks to, and it has to do with the deepest and most important part of who we are. And it's Luke's telling of it that I want us to especially listen to this Advent season. There are four major parts to Luke's telling of the Christmas story, which works out perfectly for our four Sundays in December. And each part, here's what I want us to especially notice this year, each part is a story of watching and waiting. That's what I've entitled this series, Watching and Waiting, Christmas According to Luke. We know that Christmas actually is a time of watching and waiting. I mean, just ask a child. Or just remember back to your own childhood. It's the same here. We're going to see in each case, week by week, people watching and waiting. And we'll see they're all watching and waiting for the same thing, even though, as we'll see, they are 
they're, they're not all equally aware of what they're waiting for. There's varying degrees of awareness. They don't understand it all, but that's why Luke has written, so that we might understand. So now follow along as I read. I'm going to read a good part of chapter 1. We'll save the middle part for next Sunday, but you follow along as I read, starting at verse 5. This is God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For... I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among people. Now look down to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. 
And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, let's pray. God, I pray, help us now Help us to hear what you intend us to hear. And Lord, I pray that as a result, we might actually treasure Jesus more this year. We pray in his name. Amen. So the very first people we meet as Luke begins his long narrative is this priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, and one of the first things that we learn about them is that they are old, or as Luke puts it, well advanced in years. And even more significantly, Luke tells us they had no child. Verse 7, and they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. By the way, whenever Scripture tells us that a couple has no children, that's a clue that there's one on the way. All their married years, they had been waiting, hoping, praying for a child for years. I mean, you can imagine the disappointment and the pain and the heartache when they finally realize it's not going to happen. And now at this point in their lives, it would seem that all hope is past. And the fact that they were both righteous and walked blamelessly, as verse 6 tells us, made their childlessness all the more difficult to understand because children were seen as God's blessing and you would think that if you were righteous and walked in blamelessness that God might bless you in this way. 
But the thing that's really important to see is that while Zechariah and Elizabeth's waiting is, is obviously very poignant on a personal level, their waiting is representative of a much larger, a much more significant waiting. In these days, the whole nation of Israel was waiting. See, God had made some promises to them about one who would come to be a savior, a, a redeemer, way back, I mean, 1,800 years earlier, way back in the book of Genesis, God had spoken to a man named Abram. He had spoken very clearly that he was choosing Abram to be someone very significant in God's purposes. He told Abram that he would make him into a great nation, and through that nation, something would happen that would be a blessing to all nations, to all peoples. But Abram didn't have any children, and he and his wife Sarah were, well, well advanced in years. But God gave them a son, Isaac, and he repeated those promises to Isaac, and God gave Isaac a son, Jacob, and he repeated those promises to Jacob. In fact, he made a very significant addition when he was talking to Jacob. Listen to this. This is Genesis 35, and God appeared to Jacob again, and he blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And kings did come. I mean, generations later, this guy named Saul is made to be the first king of Israel, and he's just a disaster. But then, this young shepherd boy named David is anointed to be king, and during his kingship, God appears to him as well and tells him that one of his descendants will be established as a king whose kingdom will last, get this, forever. And that promise made to David becomes hugely significant in the kind of collective consciousness of the, of the nation of Israel. Every new king that came along would make the people wonder, is, it, is this the one? And that promise becomes really important in these narratives about the birth of Jesus. You might remember, we'll see this next week. Let your eye go there for a moment. Verse 32. This is the angel speaking to Mary talking about the son that would be born to her. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And if you look over at that beautiful song of Zechariah, you'll see a similar reference. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In fact, Zechariah goes all the way back to God's word to Abram. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. I mean, I want you to see something here in this, in this song that Zechariah gives us at the close of chapter 1. This isn't just some spontaneous outburst of praise out of thin air. This is not something original that Zechariah made up. This, what is happening, is the fulfillment of something very old. The nation has been watching and waiting for this for a long time. So long, in fact, that many have given up hope. 
But Zechariah and Elizabeth, they come to see what's happening. And they are full of praise. I mean, this isn't just about the blessing of a child. This isn't just about a miraculous birth to a couple way past their childbearing years. This is much bigger, much more significant. This is about a son being born who will signal the imminent coming of the promised one, the coming of salvation. It's all about God's great promise now come to fulfillment. You see, a part of that promise that God had spoken of a coming Savior, a part of that was that God had said that he would send someone else right before the promised one would come, one who would prepare the way. Listen, very, very late in the Old Testament, in fact, the last prophet of the Old Testament, a guy named Malachi, he said this, Behold, God speaking through Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. In fact, the very last words of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You hear those words and you go, well, well, wait a minute. Elijah is come and gone. He's long dead but those words should also make you go, but wait a second, didn't I just hear something like that? Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. You look back at Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, what sustained Israel, at least what sustained many in Israel, was their hope in these promises of God that he had spoken through his prophets over the generations. But then there was this long time of silence. There's nothing no word from God for a long time. And people start to wonder, was that real? I mean, yes, they had the scriptures telling us those promises, telling them, but, but nothing's happening. For years, in fact, that silence went on for 400 years. From the time of Abraham, 1,400 years, all the way to Malachi, God had regularly spoken through the prophets, through the judges, sometimes through angels, regularly. We read in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came. God regularly providing instruction and direction and encouragement and correction for his people. He spoke, but then silence, nothing. 400 years of nothing. It seemed like God had forgotten them. And then... Luke tells us, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, out of the blue, here's this word from the Lord. Listen, you cannot judge God by your calendar. God's plan does not follow our schedules. His timing might seem completely wrong to us until it becomes clear that it isn't. 
wrong. Seems like nothing is happening, and then it does. Luke tells us in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that this word comes to a guy whose name means the Lord has remembered. Names are very significant in this story, like Elizabeth, God of the promise, or John, God is gracious, or Jesus, God saves. Zechariah, the Lord has remembered. Zechariah was a priest, just a common, ordinary priest serving in a little village up in the hill country of Judea. There were about 8,000 or so priests in Israel at this time, and they were divided up into 24 different groups, divisions, and every year each division would go down to Jerusalem for two different weeks, and they would carry out special responsibilities there. So, I mean, Zechariah is just an ordinary, common, but devout priest, faithfully serving the people of his village. But while he's in Jerusalem, during one of his weeks there, he is unexpectedly chosen for the very special responsibility of offering the incense inside the temple. You, you may remember the temple, how it's laid out. There were these courtyards, this outer courtyard where the Gentiles could come, and then an inner courtyard for the people of Israel, and then the building itself had had two parts. It had the holy place, which was kind of the main, the main area inside the temple, and then on the far end was the Holy of Holies. Those two places separated by this heavy curtain, keeping everybody that might need to come into the holy place out of the Holy of Holies. Only one guy could go inside there, and only once a year, the high priest and the altar of incense stood in the holy place right in front of that curtain. And there's a table over here, and there's a huge candelabra over here, and the altar right in the middle. Zechariah had never been in there before in his life. And while this was a great privilege, being there would have provoked a holy fear in him. I mean, there he was, so close to the holiest place on earth, before him rose that beautifully embroidered curtain with its cherubim woven into that tapestry in, in threads of blue and purple and scarlet and gold. Right in front of him was the altar of incense. And in his hands he would have a bowl of live coals taken from the brazen altar just outside. He would have picked up on his way in and he would take those coals in this bowl and he would dump them onto the surface of the altar of incense and use a utensil to kind of spread them out. And then he would take another small bowl of incense and pour it over those live coals and a fragrance would rise, symbolizing the prayers of the people rising to God. And having done that, the priest would then get on his face and pray that God would not forget his promise. And outside the people would be gathered doing exactly what that incense symbolized. They'd be praying, and the priest would not stay in there long. That was not a place to linger. He, he would offer that incense, say his prayer, and then come out, and then he would pronounce a blessing on the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. That, that all was the prescribed routine, but this time something happened. 
Verse 10, the whole multitude is outside praying. Zechariah is inside. And verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, we need to pause here to feel the weight of this. I mean, here is Zechariah. He's an old man. And he is concentrating very intently on doing what he's supposed to do in there, trying to be very careful to do his duty and then get out of there. And then all of a sudden, I mean, totally unexpectedly, there's an angel. He's standing right there. Zechariah's heart clutches. He is gripped with fear. He doesn't know what this means. And the angel looks right at him and says to him, don't be afraid. I think the angels were probably told, this will be the first thing you need to say. Because every time they appear, it is the first thing they say, because every time they appear, people are terrified. Don't be afraid. But then the angel says, verse 13, your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You know that when God is that specific about a name, he means something. The name John means God is gracious. And the angel goes on to describe what this child will be like, and Zechariah, kind of pulling himself together, sort of, he has a temporary lapse of blamelessness. He's marked, remember, by righteousness and blamelessness, and he will be again, but for a moment he falters. He doesn't believe it's possible for, for, for them to have a son. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel's response to Zechariah is just classic. Verse 19, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. You know, there are only two holy angels named in the Bible. Michael, who is, he is a, he's a warrior. We read about him in the book of Daniel. We read about him in the book of Revelation. He is, he's a warrior. And Gabriel, who is God's kind of main messenger, Whenever there is big-time stuff to announce, Gabriel gets the call. It's Gabriel that we'll see next week who comes to announce to Mary that she will be the mother of the Lord. So in answer to Zechariah's question, Gabriel just looks at him and says, I am Gabriel. I'm God's messenger. I'm God's man. I'm, I'm God's hero. That's what Gabriel means. I come from God. He sent me to tell you this. And then he says, verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So having already waited for years, Zechariah will now wait a little longer, but now with a constant reminder of God's power to do what he says and with this amazing promise in his heart, and all the while that that's happening, outside the people are waiting and they're beginning to wonder, did something happen to Zechariah in there? Finally, he comes out, verse 22. 
And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. He's supposed to be giving them a blessing. And instead, he cannot speak, and he has a look of shock on his face, and he tries to communicate as best he can, but in the end, it's useless, and so he just finishes out his duties for that week, and he heads back home, and guess what? Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. I wish there was something in there about how Zechariah tried to explain to Elizabeth what had happened to him. But instead, all we read is, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Elizabeth, God of the promise, long past her time of childbearing, is going to have a baby. And not just any baby. When it comes time for her to give birth and the child, a boy, is born, both mother and father are adamant his name is John. I mean, it's difficult for us to imagine how strange this would have been for the family, but God has his purpose. By giving this boy a non-family name, God is saying, this is bigger than you. This is of me. This is about my grace about to be poured out. I mean, something unexpected and stupendous is about to happen in the world. You see, friends, this thing that is happening to Zechariah and Elizabeth is happening for a much larger group of people. It's for the whole nation of Israel, and through Israel, for all people everywhere, the whole world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish so that whoever believes might be saved, so that there would be salvation made available to all who believe. Listen, if we don't see ourselves as sinful people, can I just say this? If we don't see ourselves as radically sinful people, totally lost, cut off from God, dead in our sins, desperately in need of being saved, I tell you, this Christmas thing makes no sense at all. God sent his son to be our savior. He will save his people from their sins. And this child that is going to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, do you see who he is? Look there at verse 66. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? I mean, that is the question Luke wants all of us to be asking. And the answer is right there in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That word knowledge there in verse 77 is not just some theoretical knowledge. It speaks of knowing personally, by experience, by inward appropriation, this salvation. Listen, if you are not aware of your desperate need, what God is doing here, it won't mean much. If you are not aware that there really is a deadly disease that we all have, this is just an interesting story. 
Do you see what it says there at the end of verse 77? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. I said this a moment ago. If we don't see ourselves as actually sinful and in need of forgiveness, then who needs this? But this is the good news. This is what Jesus came to bring, real forgiveness, the only real forgiveness of sins in the universe, actual forgiveness. And those who have experienced it can testify that there's nothing like it. It brings such joy. It brings such peace. So, where does this put us? We've seen Zechariah and Elizabeth had been waiting and watching. We've seen the nation of Israel had been waiting and watching. What about us? Are, are we watching and waiting? Well, yes and no. No, because Christ has come. He came. The Word, in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're not waiting for the coming of Christ like they were. We see the, the four Gospels tell us who Jesus is and what he did and we are the recipients of this great salvation that he came to provide. We have it now if we are in Christ. And yet, there is still a waiting for us. There is a second coming we're waiting for. So we are... We are an already and a not yet people. And in this time, in this meantime, our watching and waiting takes on a different form. It, it now takes the form of a longing in our hearts for Jesus. Even while we wait for Christ's second coming, God means for us to have him and to enjoy having him. He is God with us, Emmanuel now and he's put a longing in our hearts for real and deep fellowship with him he means for us to have relationship with him to experience his nearness his presence and to live in the good of the salvation and the forgiveness that he brings so there is this longing as christians in our hearts whom have i in heaven but you and having you, I desire nothing on earth. My, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. As a deer longs for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. And we can have that fellowship with God in Christ. Listen, Jesus said this at one point. If anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We can enjoy real fellowship with God in Christ. I, I think of that line that we sang earlier this morning from that song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. The last line of the first stanza, Joy of every longing heart. That's what Jesus is. So the question this Christmas is, do you long for, do you desire closeness with God in Christ? Is there a longing to, to know him, to love him, to enjoy fellowship with him, to not be satisfied, to just be barely creeping along in your spiritual life? Do you long for connection 
with this Jesus? Or is that part of your heart already occupied? Taken up with longing for other things? Maybe you've even become content with other things. You know, one of the things that is so clear in every part of this story that Luke presents to us, all four parts, we'll see this, is that the focus is always being drawn to Jesus. As much as this story appears to be about Zechariah and Elizabeth, or as much as it might seem to be about John, it's really the hand of God that Luke wants us to see. Did you notice how Luke wrapped up his narrative part of this? Look at verse 66 again. All who heard them laid, up, laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? And now here, here's Luke. For the hand of the Lord was with him. We will not really understand anything about this story if we don't see this. God's hand is in all of this. God is doing all of this. That angel, from God. That miraculous birth, that's of God. That silencing and then loosening of Zechariah's tongue, that is of God. It's all God's doing, and Luke wants us to be sure that we're seeing it, so he makes a point of telling us there in verse 66, the hand of God is everywhere here, and what God's hand is doing is providing salvation, and what God's hand is pointing to is Jesus. Whether the people in these accounts are fully aware of it or not, all our attention is being directed to Jesus. And here, in this part of the story, it's clear that was to be John's role, to call attention to Jesus. His job was to make sure that there would be a people ready to receive the salvation that Jesus would bring. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That was John's job, to point people to Jesus, and that's exactly what John did. Remember when, as a grown man, he's walking out in the countryside with his own disciples, and Jesus comes, and what does John do? He turns to his disciples and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John is doing is he is saying salvation has arrived right there. Forgiveness for your sins has arrived and it's right there. This is who I've been telling you about and here he is. It's amazing and it's powerful and it's really good news. And it's in every part of this story that we'll explore this month. Every part is meant to direct our eyes to one place, to one person, Jesus. Well, let me wrap this up. This year, like every year, there will be two very different kinds of Christmas celebrations. On one hand, there will be millions of people celebrating with lights and gifts and family gatherings, but studiously avoiding any serious consideration of Jesus. And on the other hand, there will be millions of people celebrating Christmas with Jesus as the very much treasured centerpiece, center of focus. May I say... This morning as we stand on the brink of Christmas coming, 
that a Jesus-less Christmas will be empty and hollow and completely beside the point. Just like a Jesus-less life will be empty and ultimately a tragedy. A Jesus-less Christmas will be nothing but a superficial charade, but a Jesus-full, a Jesus-centered Christmas will be exactly right. And a life, a life with Jesus fully in it, will also be exactly right. It'll be a life of clarity and a life of joy and a life of real peace and deep satisfaction, and ultimately it will lead to eternal life. So the question in this season of waiting and anticipating is, have you allowed something else to fill in that place that Christ is meant to occupy? If so, you'll be empty. Whatever else it is, it will not satisfy. The great theologian, St. Augustine said it so well, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless and they will be restless, disappointed, empty, until they find their rest in God through Jesus Christ, this one that John is calling our attention to. It's all found in Jesus. He is everything to us. So let us this season, in fact, let us all year, all the time, long for him and find him to be our true joy. Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us like this. Thank you for sending your Son to rescue us. Thank you that he gave his life that we might have life. Thank you for this gift of forgiveness. And Lord, we pray, open our hearts so that Jesus might be our all. In his name.